Well, Brent is gay, and Kaylin's gay, and Clark is gay, and Ryan's gay, and Adam's gay. It's Homo Superior. Welcome to another edition of Our Secret Records, where we cover stuff that's a little bit off our beaten path. Uh, And today, we're going to be talking about the second season of Fargo. I'm Kaylin. And I'm Brent Wingate. All right, so Fargo season two. Uh, had all the Fargo goodness of season one, but further in the past. Um, This season, um, it follows the prior season's uh, fears and mentions of the Sioux Falls Massacre. The story connects to Molly Salverson's father, Lou, as he tries to piece together the various criminal activity from people like Ed and Peggy Blumquist, who accidentally kill an overly ambitious member of the Gerhardt family, to the Gerhardt Crime Syndicate out of the Midwest, to their new rivals, the Kansas City Mob, keen on gaining new territory after the Gerhardt family head, Otto, has had a stroke. Obviously, it's it's a Fargo season, so there's so much that goes on. It's not worth digging to into any of it. If you haven't seen it, watch it. Um, but let's do our classic, Kalen. Why is this the best? Why is this the worst? Let's start with the best. Um, I normally hate prequels uh, because you already kind of know what's going to happen. But I think this is the prequel that uh, defies the rule. Um, Because, you know, as you mentioned in your recap, um, uh, Lou Salverson in season one is like this kindly paternal, you know, owner of this diner. And he makes these like sort of offhanded references to the Sioux City Massacre from uh, a few decades in the past. Um, Everything about this season lives up to what season one did and then then some. Um, It is uh, it shows no sophomore slump from Noah Hawley's part. Um, It is beautiful to watch. Uh, It is shot very much like a 70s crime thriller. And I mean that in the best way possible. And. Um, it shows that that Holly is not a one-trick pony, um, where you know people thought, oh, the first season of Fargo is really good. It's definitely him doing his remix of the Coen Brothers, um, but you know, can he do it again? And he does, and he does it without trying to um, you know hit the same story beats or even have the same archetypes, uh, which we'll get into in a little bit later on. Um, it is just it's it's fantastic, and. I, in my head, and I've told you this off podcast before, Brent, I can't figure out which season I love more, season one or season two. They're both wonderful in their own ways. Um, but sometimes just I think the 70s aesthetic, late 70s aesthetic of season two and sort of the, the general malaise it gives off of like the sort of like uh, the end of the 70s, like pre-Reagan uh, America that like everybody was sort of feeling at the time. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly something to... When you have a story that really captures, you know, it's the kind of thing of like you can't you can't describe uh, an epoch when you're in it. But I think that some really great stories make you feel this change. And this feels like we're on the cusp of a new era, which is it's just a hard thing to write in general. But going off of what I think is the best about this for me, it's someone like Lou Salverson, who, if you had to pick a scene from season one that I think was the most emblematic of what made season one great, 
it would be the conversation Mulvo had with Lou Salverson. And it's that conversation was between a truly dangerous person and a person who understood what real danger meant. You could have this thing where you create a prequel and you don't help a character. You don't help see a character build up to being someone who can comprehend horror that can withstand it and can be this kind of wizened, uh, you know, older father figure later. Yeah. And this, the, the second season really, I think does such a good job of filling out these really rich characters who have nuance, who have humor, who have stupidity. I think for the most part, there are so many of them that you could talk about for hours. You know, uh, one of the things that uh, Holly does is he just doesn't, um, you know, harken back to the original Fargo movie. Like he clearly has a love of uh, a lot, if not all of uh, the Coen brothers fair this season, more than any of seasons of Fargo. uh, And they're almost done with the fourth season right now, as we are recording this, uh, uh, harkens back to my favorite Coen Brothers film, No Country for Old Men. And um, you can almost see, um, you know, uh, Tommy Lee Jones's character, the sheriff yes. in that movie, uh, in Lou Salverson, although he's a younger, less, like, grizzled version of, of him. Uh, and, um, you know, it's weird, like, then looking back on season one, it's almost like now you see kind of what happened to that character in No Country for Old Men, Tommy Lee, Tommy Lee Jones's character, and how he, like, left this life of of uh, law and order behind him and try to do something else with his life. Um, I, I really, really dug that. Yeah. I mean, certainly there's that parallel to uh, Bob Odenkirk's character who, you know, he's kind of getting older, but he's not quite as grizzled as someone like Tommy Lee Jones character. Yeah. And I think that's a good comparison because there's a certain sense in which you still, you know, stick it out. And you really fight the good fight, um, which is something that Lou kind of points out to that awful um, uh, 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 detective. The one who's going to get promoted. Yeah, the yeah. one who gets promoted and he's yeah. just a real asshole. Yeah. Um, all right. So what do you think is uh, the worst about this? Um, it's really hard to say what's the worst. Um, I think some of the Gephardt characters, Gerhardt, not Gephardt. Yeah. Gephardt was a, a former house leader, a Democratic house leader, but um, the Gerhards are more caricatures than they are actual characters. Who who in particular comes to your mind? Uh, I think to a certain degree, Dodd. Uh, oh, Dodd? Dodd. Dodd. Dodd uh, who is... Who's, who has eight rows of teeth in his mouth. Yeah. Uh, as well as his daughter, Simone, who I think are more like plot devices more than anything else. I think Dodd is probably a little bit more filled out, filled out as a character. Um, Simone is probably a little bit less so. Uh, and it's it, it's really hard to find like anything that's really wrong with it. It's just like, oh, you know, they could have been really intriguing characters, but maybe because of the space of 10 episodes in the season, uh, the focus on the Blumquist, the focus on Lou, the focus on Hank. Uh, the focus on Hansi um, and Floyd and, and Mike Milligan, um, you know, maybe some things just kind of got l- left off the, the chopping block. But like, um, you know, there's some scenes where like real tragedy happens to them, even though they may deserve it. And I felt I was like, oh, OK, that, that's just a plot, like one plot point going to the next rather than me caring about the character. 
Yeah, I think that, um, you know, obviously because it's a second data point, you start to be able to see more of Noah Hawley's ticks, which we'll get into later. But for me, probably the most distracting one was how Midwestern and different everyone's accent was. They were all just chewing through their language. Like it became a little gratuitous and hard to hear. And I love the first movie. Oh yeah, sure. You betcha. Love it. But if every character is doing it and they're all doing it in weird, different ways and being nasal in odd ways, it just becomes like, do you guys live in the same area? (laughs) Have you met each other? See, it's funny you say that because I felt that more in season one than I did in season two. Like season one, it's like, over the top over the top i think i think the the one of the earliest times you see it is when you first see ed blumquist and he's he's checking out of the butcher shop and there is a near five minute conversation where okay then get said 15 fucking times yeah okay then all right okay then you're gonna head home okay then yeah it is infuriating (laughs) I just want to blow my fucking brains out. <laughs> I really liked it, actually. I liked, I love, I love the colloquialism of okay then, because it ha- it has so many meanings. Yeah, sure. I, I'm, I like that too, but I hate it when it's three different accents who are all trying to be more Minnesotan yeah. than the next. Uh, I, I almost think like uh, if you could uh, get into a character's head, it's Mike Milligan when he tells hank uh, or maybe lou yeah when he goes it's like you midwesterners it's not that you're it's not that you're you're not, not friendly you're not friendly but you're so polite about the way you're not friendly like you're doing me a favor yeah exactly yeah well that okay i mean so as far as they get like and this might be one of noah holly's best features that midwesterners have this true passive aggression they are they are so angry, but they're like a kid that's grown up that yeah. never learned that it was angry about something. And so it's just this like gentle bitterness, like get the fuck out of my face. But they say it in a way that's like, oh, do you mind moving out of my way, please? Yeah. Like, are you an Irish leprechaun who's like lived in Norway for three months? Um, all right. So let's talk about uh, how the connect how it connects to um season one yeah um so obviously there's a lot of references to the sioux falls massacre yeah um we had a section where martin freeman who played lester nygaard Mm -hmm. in the first season basically told the story of the sioux falls massacre Mm -hmm. from a um from a historical perspective what were some of the elements that you thought were most important for connecting these two how necessary were they actually? Um, I think uh, because, the, again, the first season referenced the Sioux Falls Massacre so much, uh, it had to be shown. It just had to be. It's like it's uh, almost like a narrative, um, like sequ- uh, uh, season to season, like Chekhov's gun, but told in reverse. Yeah. Like you have told us about it. Now you got to show it. Yeah. They told us about it twice. Yeah. And in one of those times, uh, Lou says it's. Such crazy things happen that you wouldn't believe it. Right. He also actually probably th- a third time because he did mention 
the fact that there was one time he was protecting Molly and he sat out on his front porch with his gun. Yeah. Nothing happened. So, you know. Yeah. It got it got brought up several times. Um there's that and then there's the um obviously like at the end Hanzi uh chooses a new identity um and we can infer that he becomes the Fargo boss and that's that we see in season 1 who has that kind of the weird face and the weird like almost like a digital digitized type voice. Yes. Uh because Hanzi like goes to like we think save these two boys one of whom is deaf. And that, you know, references like Mr. Wrench and... That is Mr. Wrench. It is definitely Mr. Wrench. Yeah. And his partner, whose name I can't remember from season one. Yeah. I don't know if that part was super necessary to include. It wasn't necessary to include it. I just think it was like, oh, this is a nice little connection. Yeah. That that part felt more like an Easter egg than anything. Yeah. um, Because the mob boss's role was basically circumscribed to, I think one or two scenes i don't know if i saw him more than once just once and then uh malvo kills him that's right yeah um the the fact that the crime syndicates as a whole though generally are completely separate i thought was an interesting choice um it well you know just from a literary perspective it's like easier to come up with different characters and you don't have to continue as many through lines yeah but i also think that it helps with the cyclic uh cycl- cyclicalness how do you say that word yeah, cyclicality sure of cyclic cyc- yeah I can't the cyclicality of, yeah. it's stupid yeah. it's a dumb word to get cyclical on <laughs> the revolutions of it is that it it just keeps coming back that you keep having violent groups that see a vacuum mm-hmm. and then try and fill it yeah do you think that do you think that we needed Lou Salverson? I know that was mentioned, but like if Lou Salverson, you know, wasn't around as much or he he had he had about the same sized part as that detective uh, who's a piece of shit. What's his what's that guy's fucking name? Uh, Bill or whatever. Sure. Um, I actually I thought Lou was fine. Um, I think uh, Patrick Wilson, the actor is, you know, I think he's a fine actor. He's one of those guys that kind of uh, just, you know, I, I find him mostly inoffensive and sometimes good, but never great. I wish we had spent more time with Ted Danson. Um, yeah. With, uh, as um, Hank, I think was the character's name. Um, and he plays, you know, he's um, he's Molly's grandfather, uh, Molly from the first season. And there's a, just a really touching scene kind of at the end. Uh, uh, sort of towards the end, you see that his daughter, Lou's wife, um uh betsy i believe uh discovers in his in hank's house like he's been doing all these like weird illustrations he's become very obsessive and then you find out at the end because she asks him and he goes well you know i think so much of the world's problems come from misunderstanding and what if i could create a common language to get us to understand better and you know uh she just says you're a good man and it's like yeah he's just he's such a decent guy um not to say that Lou isn't, but uh, no, I think uh, I think uh, you're right. Yeah. I also think that the fact it was an interesting, uh, um, <clears throat> kind of meditary meta commentary on the nature of Cohen Brothers stories. That yeah. the fundamental problem is that people who have information with each other aren't haven't shared that information. Also, I think uh, both Lou and Hank um, 
fill the role of Molly from the first season, and then other characters we'll get into in, in the subsequent seasons. Um, one of the themes that Holly likes to go back to is sort of um, not straight up corruption in police, but people taking shortcuts, uh, cutting corners to be able to try to reach, um, you know, their end goal. They're like, well, you know, uh, Occam's razor tells me this is what it is. And his protagonists end up being these sort of like savants saying, no, you're missing all these pieces. You've got to take a step back and look at the full chessboard. He goes back to this well a lot. And it's not it's not a, a, a trope that I mind. Uh, but we saw it in season one. We're seeing it in season two. And then when we talk about uh, Fargo season three, we'll see it there as well. So what do you think at this point Holly is trying to say? about police work other than that they just cut corners. I mean, there's that idea that every movie is either pro-war or anti-war. Like, do you think that there is a... Is it that simplified? Or, you know, what do you take away from the way that police... The vast majority of police in in these stories seem to do their work? I think he is um, maybe trying to make the point that in any job in any vocation you have people that are just there to clock in clock out you know just collect their paycheck collect their pensions collect their 401k but then you know there are some people in these professions that are true visionaries uh who can um kind of uh break the mold oh so like a police officer as artist yeah and you see that on the other side too because like if you talk, we're talking about season two, compare someone like Mike Milligan versus someone like Dodd uh, Gerhardt. Um, you know, Dodd. Ma- uh, Mike Milligan is the assassin who travels with the, what the, the other bro- the brothers. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, yeah. He's, uh, he's the African American guy. He's with the Kansas City syndicate. Um, and it's clear that, uh, Mike is a very learned guy. He likes to quote Jabberwocky. Um, he uh, the Jabberwock, not Jabberwocky. Jabberwocky is a um, is a is a quasi Monty Python film, um, and you know clearly tries to see you know um, all the angles. Whereas someone like Dodd Gerhardt is, I mean, he's just a glorified thug. And um, early on, you you know you saw the flashback when. His father took over the business uh, in that theater and like Dodd kills like the other boss as a child. Right. Um, But like that's all he is. He's a he is a he's a weapon. He's a he's a dagger. He's a gun. And he doesn't really think for himself in the way that like someone like a Milligan could or even a a Floyd uh, Gerhardt could the the matriarch of the of the Gerhardt family. Um, And so I think that like there's some there's an interesting comparison to be made there of, um, uh, you know, there's people who just come in and think they're entitled to something and, like, they're just doing the bare minimum. And then you have true visionaries, regardless of their vocation, coming in to really uh, show, like, what that work can be and, and what they can do. Yeah, it's certainly something that seems more ascribed to the villains that you have people who can see the picture. The, yeah. the great hero and the villain can see the whole picture. And then you have these ambitious characters who might be the second level 
who want to pull, you know, some hoodwink over another person. And then you have people who are so alarmed by all of this that they're they're just completely in shock. Because, see, I thought, to go back a little bit, I thought that Holly is establishing by the second season a um, example that proves the rule, condemnation of the way police forces work. Mm-hmm. That but for the unrelenting dedication of particular police officers who constantly violate the rules of their supervisors, cases wouldn't be solved, people wouldn't know what the fuck is going on, and that it, it to me, seemed a lot harsher of a criticism of the way that the police worked, that it is bureaucracy, yeah. it is simplicity, it is not an interest in, like, really, it is something that is just so limited in its ability to exercise its job both by resources and vision Yeah, that it's something that needs fundamental change. It's very similar to some of the points that David Simon uh, and Ed Burns made uh, with The Wire. Um, um, I'm starting to see the comparisons a lot more now. Um, So I know that um, last time we talked a little bit about the vision of society and we got into a little bit of the politics of what suburban life is like and how, you know, there might be a kind of conservative view of America in Fargo season one. Yeah. What do you make of the politics of this season, especially with us explicitly starting with Ronald Reagan and nearly ending with Ronald Reagan? Um, I think uh, it's, making uh an interesting point here because 1979 um was you know you weren't alive i was barely alive um is a time in america when people were just not feeling great about themselves if history can be believed um it was an era of inflation it was a watergate had just happened a few years before we had just gotten out of vietnam a few years before uh there was in the middle of a uh, gas crisis gas crisis uh the hostage crisis um and it's just sort of this feeling of like america's best days were behind them and then you have someone like ronald reagan who um was written off by a lot of people as this sort of unserious man um you know because he was once an actor but you know of course he was governor of california which at the time i don't know if it was the largest state at the time but definitely a large state um you know, and was a mover and shaker in the conservative movement, um, but could play the role of like telling and reassuring America that uh, its best days were in front of in front of it. Um, but uh, there is this pivotal scene which I think almost worked when. Uh, Lou is like kind of on his detail when he's like coming through North Dakota. Right. And, and he's in the bathroom. They're in the bathroom and, you know, Lou's dealing like his visage cracks uh, and like, you know, his wife is going through a terminal case of cancer. Um, By that point, I believe she's on this treatment and does it. And they're trying to figure out what it means to be on a trial. Right. I don't know if they've got sugar pills or the real medication. Exactly. And he just kind of breaks down and he just asks, you know, then 
candidate Ronald Reagan, you know, like you're saying all these platitudes, but what does it mean? And Reagan doesn't give him any answers. He just gives him another platitude and just, you know, shakes his hand and leaves the bathroom. And I think it's making a, uh, the, the, uh, the critique it's making is Americans were yearning for that positive story. Uh, but, and while Reagan could give them that story, that's all he could give them. He couldn't give them anything more than that. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a very smart, uh, uh, political, uh, smart political analysis that Holly and, and his team did. Well, to add to that, I mean, so um, you had just after Nick Offerman's lawyer character, what is his name? Um, he is saying to his little, you know, sidekick friend who's always at the uh, the VA bar. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm not going to shake his hand. He was in a monkey. He was in a movie with a monkey. How disgraceful. Yeah. And the second Ronald Reagan shows up, he's like, I just loved you in this movie. Yeah. There is a certain phoniness that people want to buy into, you know, his tearing up at Ronald Reagan speaking, basically just these kind of platitudes. Yeah. It's something that you could actually believe in. And in this kind of like shadow that, America's living in it's certainly something that's tempting I thought my favorite part of the bathroom interaction yeah was when Ronald Reagan asks Lou Silverson you know have you served and Lou's like yeah I served and uh he asked so then Reagan says yeah we also fought in a battle he's like oh wait no did we win that one? No, it was a different one. And he's re- referring to his movies. Yeah. But it's also a very subtle hint at his uh, dementia. Oh, yeah. Uh, I thought, um, first of all, um, Nick Offerman's character's name is Carl Weathers. Um, Carl Weathers. Uh, and I thought, uh, oh, gosh, what's the actor's name from Evil Dead, Army of Darkness? Um, Bruce Campbell. Bruce Campbell did such a wonderful job. Great. As Ronald Reagan. Not, not completely like... Just doing a caricature of him, not but, not over the top. Yeah, it was it was so wonderful. But kind of going to your point uh, of that, I, I think Americans really hunger for someone who is going to give them, um, offer a simple solution or explanation for complex problems. Uh, and I wish it was otherwise, but that's what happens. And this is sort of like the danger of like Donald Trump. Uh, it was why. Uh, Barack Obama did as well as he did. It's why George Bush, George W. Bush did as well as he did when he ran for um, re-election, especially, but, you know, well enough for when he ran for election the first time. And when you have someone like um, a Hillary Clinton or a George H.W. Bush, um, you know, trying to be like almost too smart for um, their own good, you see it sort of fall apart. And so someone like uh, a Ronald Reagan made a lot of sense when you had Jimmy Carter saying, life sucks right now, you know, and, you know, we're trying to make it through. And you got Reagan saying, are you better off four years ago than you are today? And our best days are ahead of us. You know, obviously that's going to win. Yeah. So that is certainly a, to me that it was an interesting addition because in as far as we got Reagan, it was the, the closest we got for it to mattering to a character was around that bathroom scene and then we got all these different movie shots um of ronald reagan or ronald reagan's supposed to be in the shot and he wasn't there um 
But largely, the actual story wasn't talking about there. There weren't many people who mentioned Reagan or him as being like a real possibility for president. Um, there are some other themes for society and civilization that I want to ask about, you know, because we got stuff from the Kansas mob coming into the Gerhard syndicate. Yeah. And one of the things that they say is the, you know, Gerhard syndicate isn't civilized because they rely on their family networks. Right. Um, what do you think? Do you think this has anything to do with the politics of the show? What do you make of that as being like a part of um, how society is formed? Well, it's interesting you say the family stuff because it just made me kind of think of the outgoing, you know, Trump administration where um, the Kansas syndicate is like they have built themselves. They've turned from crime into business. They're still criminals, but they are treating it like you know, there's a bottom line here, you know, we're not going to take this personally. And how then, much, how much does it cost to commit violence versus to do some acquisition? Exactly. Um, whereas the Gerhardt family, it's like, it's still the frontier for them. It's still the wild West. They're still a family run business. And, um, Donald Trump, you know, when he was in business, saw business that way. And then when he came into the white house, he still saw it the same way. Uh, you know, he still has his sons, his daughter, his son-in-law, you know, doing these very important roles that they are clearly unqualified for. And one of the best things, uh, best conversations that we had in the parlay between Floyd and uh, Joe Bulo, who was uh, the um, the the first emissary from the Kansas City right. Uh, mafia. Right, he was uh, in Everyone Loves Raymond. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, thank you. Uh, wonderful actor. That guy. <laughs> that guy, yeah. He's got one of the best voices, I yeah. think, in entertainment. Well, he basically says, you know, if, if this is the pro- difference between you and me, if your son, if, like, if someone like your son mouthed off to me, I'd take off his fingers or take off his hand and he'd never do it again or I'd kill him. But because he's your son... You can't do that to him because Dodd was trying to undermine the negotiations while they were happening. Um, And I think that was a very just really wonderful and chilling scene. Do you think, though, Okay, so this, I think, is something important. Like to me, one of the things Holly is trying to highlight is the real lack of difference between something that's civilized versus uncivilized. Like. The things that make us society are also kind of the things that make us tribal gangs and the opposite of society. So you, we that that scene, which was great, where he's acting like I if I had to punish someone, that's what I would do. It is not a civilized thing to do. That's an absolutely horrific thing to do. Right. And to pretend like the Gerhards couldn't be just as vicious right to think of yourself as being i'm arbitrary in how little i value human life right is not a feature of civilization it's just zeros and ones to him exactly uh but yeah that's a really good point uh i mean the point he was trying to make is like nepotism isn't going to save you the the um the amount that the show tries to focus on It's probably a little bit too much. It brought it up too much. Like we would have gotten it. This is not a Western anymore. Yeah. That Mike Milligan 
is this kind of character who thinks of himself as being like he is a he is a man for hire he's here to wrangle people he he is someone who is um setting down norms he's the person who would chop off your finger no matter what right he shoved the stupid guy's uh necktie into the typewriter yeah. and started writing a letter yeah he is someone who is brutal and violent yeah who is also just shaken up by the reality that he doesn't belong in a western he can't he can't embrace lawlessness with the same idea like he can't just because he thinks he can Im- impose order doesn't mean he has. So that's interesting that you say that. Well, one, uh, I think he does think he's in a Western just based on the way he dresses. Uh, let's start with that. Oh, he's wearing, sure. he's yeah. wearing the bolo ties. And I think he's a highly adaptable character. He, I think he sees himself as uh, a crusader in an unholy land. Let's take away the Western sure. uh, uh, reference. You know, he's coming in from Constantinople, you know, and heading into, uh, you know, heading into Persia. Heading into uh, the, uh, uh, the the Arabian Peninsula. Do you? Th- I mean, do you think so? Sorry, it sounds like you're kind of like making him a righteous in the same way that Samuel Jackson and Pulp Fiction kind of acted as righteous. They're very, very similar characters. Um, you know, whereas uh, uh, Samuel Jackson Jules is quoting Bible verses without actually understanding what they mean. You've got um, you've got Mike quoting literature, uh, and and uh, yeah. and being trying to be a very erudite guy, and part of it is 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 his race and ethnicity. You know, he is a black guy in a mostly white uh, syndicate going into a mostly white area that he's got to be ten times smarter, ten times more vicious to be able to do it. But he does. I mean, so like he becomes a man out of place when he achieves too much success that's true that's towards the end is when it happens when i think that he goes from being in a, a western or being in a crusader film into going to office space essentially uh he uh when he achieves what he thinks he wants he goes into middle management it is one of the <laughs> the most terrifying scenes from somebody who works professionally as, as you do too brent you know, we're like, okay, you've achieved the success and you get this little office in this like uh, ugly building and everything that you loved about your previous job goes away because you're just concerned about the bottom line and about quarterly reports. And you have to listen to some fucking guy tell you about how someone saved us money on mail. Yeah. Who gives a shit? Wh- what does this matter? And yeah. you're then confined by the corporation. Yeah. It matters to them because the bottom line is all that matters. So where does someone like Bear as a character, the second Dodd son, land? Because I think in this kind of Western motif, he's someone who lived relatively outlawlessly in the sense of being a, you know, part of a crime syndicate. But he also understood um, when uh, Carl Weathers told him, hey, man, this isn't the Wild West. You can't just break your son out of jail. Right. And he walked away from it. He seemed to have a little bit more perspective. He is, a, I think he's one of the most sensible of uh, the Gerhards. Um, and he is, he's got his own code. Uh, he doesn't 
he's not the firstborn, so he doesn't feel entitled to take over the business. This is just something that was sort of like thrust upon him, and he wants his son to be away from it. Uh, he's almost like, um, to put it in Godfather terms, um, he's not Sonny, he's not Fredo, he's not Michael. He's like none of them. He's like, you know what? Um, this to me is a job. Fredico. Yeah. <laughs> this to me is a job. I don't want to rock any boats. I want things to be the way that they are. And I just want to be happy. And I want my son to get out of this. At break, you know, break out of this. He knew his son couldn't handle it. His son who had, I think, mild uh, cerebral palsy. Um, he wanted him to get away from a life of crime and have a professional job, you know, make something of his life. And clearly, you know, that didn't that didn't happen. But when Carl Weathers tells him, look, your son will be okay after a little while if we go through the process. If you break him out... It be- will be so much worse. It'll be 10 times as worse. So what do you make of... Because we haven't talked yet really about Ed and Peggy. Great characters. So... When you first heard about this show, do you recall how you felt when you heard that Kirsten Dunst was going to be in it? Um, so I'm, I've been a bit, uh, fan of Kirsten Dunst ever since Interview of the Vampire. I think she is a tremendous character actor. I think she completely envelops herself in the roles that she does. I was more of a mixed bag because I'm so much younger that my introduction to her was in the Spider-Man movies. Oh, God, okay. And it was just not good. Yeah. And so I had a sense of dread. Yeah. And the level of subtlety I think she brought to this wide-eyed character was fantastic. Plus, Alice and Janie. Was that Alice and Janie? Or wait, no. Uh, um, Jean Smart. Jean Smart. Yeah. Uh, a poor man's Alice Janey. Just stop. <laughs> You're off this podcast. Yeah. Um, so her plus Gene Smart yeah. um, constantly contrasting Ed, I think, was fantastic. They had some crazy dreams. What did you think about what they wanted? And, you know, what do you think is trying to be said about the nature of the American dream versus this kind of idea of self actualization um so uh the 70s was an era i think of like you know sort of third wave feminism um you know with uh bella abzug and uh gloria steinem and all that and so clearly i think that kind of stuff influenced uh peggy uh, a lot whereas someone like ed ed is a simple guy he's like i've worked my life in this butcher shop i'm trying to save enough money to buy it uh, I want us to have, you know, three kids or however many and lead the same lives that my parents did. And clearly Peggy doesn't want that, but she doesn't know how to she doesn't know how to say that she doesn't want it. Um, she clearly talks about being self-actualized. She's very much influenced by her boss at the hair salon who wants her to go to the seminar, spend all this money to do that. And um I think it was Hank who asked her, like, when she hit uh, Rye, you know, in the first episode. Yeah. It's like, why didn't you, why didn't you, like, tell somebody? Why did you drive all the way home and leave him in your garage? And she says, well, you're, 
you're acting like this is like one and two, you know, or like these things happened in sequence, you're not really getting, you know, all the things that are going on in my head. I'm paraphrasing here what she said. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, she's just slightly askew and there's almost something interesting to be said about about like going back to Hank, uh, you know, trying to create a language where everybody could understand one another. And she she and Hank couldn't understand one another. Look, she was look, she's right. You know, if you try and evaluate every individual, if you try and evaluate all the series of steps, I look like I did something wrong. But her her explanation of like each of the individual parts of it would have been, you know, they seem so normal. She literally came home, sat down, brushed her hair, yeah. hung out for a bit. It was something that there was a very clear part of her that the severity of that did not register. The severity didn't register, but at the same time, I think she wanted some kind of a catalyst to get her out of the uh, mundaneness of her life. Yeah, seeing, I mean... As she was talking in her final car ride to jail yeah. about, hey, can they transfer me to a California prison? Yeah. Like, girl, you're going to jail. She you- wanted to go to Alcatraz. Yeah. She wanted to fucking go to Alcatraz. <laughs> She's like, can they charge me on like federal charges so I can be sent to California? Yeah. Like, what do you what do you think that what do you think that's going to be like? I think that there's something important about the way that those two view their dreams. Yeah. Because Ed seems like a guy who knows what he wants, but he has no idea why. And Peggy seems like she has wants, but she has no idea what it means to fulfill them if she got them. Yeah. And the kind of most interesting conversation with respect to that was when Ed was... um, talking to the girl who works at the counter at the butchery yeah and he's trying to explain why this matters to him why he needs to get it and she's she is quoting Camus and trying to talk about the yeah the kind of absurdist part of life the pointlessness of it yeah um and obviously there's so much philosophy there to unpack but but you gotta try well i'm not gonna try now i mean but you gotta try Oh yeah, that's and what he oh, says. Oh yeah, you gotta try. But you gotta try. Oh, that's what you were saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he just fundamentally didn't get it. Um, no, I think he got it. I think he got it completely. And I just think, for him, life is very linear, and that's not a bad thing. That's just like this is he knows what he wants, uh, and I think he knows how he wants to get it. It's just his vision of the future didn't match up with his wife's vision of the future. To me, it sounded like he that that is the way. Like if you've had a conversation with a relative, and you're trying to talk to them about something, yeah, and they just shut down. That was the same. You got to try. Well, you just got to try. It's like, well, no, you don't understand why you've got to try. You are still in the I need this operation, and you're shutting out anything that could question that. Which is why he's so dismissive of Peggy all the time. He's like. He's ignoring all of her wants, all of her needs in order to have his dream fulfilled because that's the American dream. You own a business, you own a home, you've got a family, you've got a, you've got a wife and a kid. 
Okay, sure. Uh, I I I see. I saw the conversation. This podcast is over. No. <laughs> yeah, I I saw the conversation between him and I think Noreen was the name of the girl who worked at the uh, uh at the butcher shop who yeah. was reading Camus, and Noreen is she's in high school, you know, or in college. She's re- very very young, and she's just learning about these philosophers, you know, for the first time. Think about when you learned about. Camus or about Voltaire about all these philosophers and you just thought you were so fucking deep because like you had just discovered it and you're like wow existentialism or you know solipsism all of this stuff well the difference was I actually was deep <laughs> sorry go on <laughs> uh cool um and you know when I remember like going home I, I remember I took philosophy in college I remember going home after the semester and telling my parents about this stuff and they were just like yeah, that's great. I learned all this stuff too when I was your age, but like this is real life, you know? And she's talking about the absurdity of the human existence in this sort of abstract because she's learning for the first time. And you've got Ed saying, well, what's the alternative? Give up? You got to try. That's what he meant. No, I see. Okay, fine. Then let's get into it because actually I think she's right because the point in the context of Fargo Uh, And the point that Camus was making was your reality is not governed by any of the particular set of rules you think that they are, that what you need to do is what you what you have to do. There are rules that we experience, but there isn't anything fundamentally moral about the uh, about the nature of the universe caring about you. Camus was not like his other nihilist philosophical counterparts who said well then it doesn't mean anything the important thing was that you recognize the absurdity of living and then embrace the things that you want and work to purposes that matter to you you can create purpose but the universe has none and the fact that there are characters like ed and like peggy who are oblivious to that i i think shows how they could never grasp they if they watch the coen brothers universe they could never understand it they're always going to be overwhelmed by their position compared to someone like uh betty salverson uh who is like i'm going to die i know i'm going to die i'm never going to do something special but i can appreciate the life that i have and want to continue to have a good life as long as it exists so two things. One, uh, Camus can do, but Sartre is smarter. I will kill you. <laughs> but two, more more seriously, uh, I think you just hit hit it on the head there. These people don't know they're in a Coen Brothers esque story. They are um, they are just living their lives, not knowing these like existential forces are going to come crashing down on their head. Um, you know, right before that, right after that scene is um, you see uh, Bear's son come in to try to take out... He's basically been tasked by Dodd to take, take out the Butcher of Luverne uh, and, and no bystanders. He yeah. can't do it. The other henchman comes in and does it. And so like all of it just sort of comes crashing down on them. Um, neither Ed nor Noreen are killed, but the, uh, the butcher shop that Ed's been trying to buy just literally goes up in smoke and everything just like goes askew. So in our last little bit of time here, um, we have to talk about the UFOs. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. So when you first watch it, I think my perception of it was it seemed like a kind of thing that, oh, they mentioned like UFOs occasionally, but you're not really paying attention to it. And then by the showdown at the motel, Mm -hmm. the fact that a UFO shows up, it can seem kind of jarring. Upon second viewing, you see a lot more hints. You see a lot more context for it. It seems a little bit more grounded in the reality of the show. I want to ask first, when you first saw it, how did that UFO hit you at the motel? Um, I thought it was just like a weird Lynchian sort of flourish that I just don't know really worked for me. Uh, but the more I thought about it and then rewatching the season quite recently, um, I think it kind of goes back to what you and I were just talking about, that there are forces out there that everyday people just cannot understand. And so the UFO could be a stand-in for an elder god. It could be a stand-in for a supernatural force that um, doesn't really care about what's happening you know, at any given time. It's just, this exists. Um, you know, we're just, you know, scattered, scattering like ants, doing our own little thing. But the forces of the universe don't really give a damn about what we end up doing. It's a very um, cold statement. It is very sort of um, H.P. Lovecraft-esque. Uh, and so I I, I I started liking that a lot more because I think we talked about it a little bit more in the, uh, when we were doing the uh, our podcast for the, for the first season about how there's this sort of existential horror, this like otherworldly horror behind yeah. all the stuff. And this sort of, it manifested in this very kind of like tropey sci-fi kind of way. That's an interesting idea because I could not escape the 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 movie The Man Who Wasn't There and how this UFO basically appears out of nowhere to judge a guy who's in prison and it puts a spotlight on him and kind of the common cinematic interpretation is that it is acting as this kind of outside judgment that it is almost as if if I grounded God in reality, this what would an outside observer look on me for having done? Yeah. And I think I like that idea of, you know, it's it still being in line with the world. The universe doesn't care about us, but that look at what the outcome of our actions is. And if mm. we are not, are we not ashamed of the kind of machinations we have for greed and power? That the only basically the only people who make out make it out unscathed is Lou. Um, everyone else is either murdered or seriously injured. Right. Um, I think another thing also. I I think um, Holly was just sort of playing with um, some of the things that people were interested in in the late seventies, early eighties, and UFOs was a big part of that. Uh, it. Oh, sort that's of per- true. Yeah. It permeated pop culture. I think Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out in either 1979 or 1980. You know, it was a very popular movie by Steven Spielberg. So um, I think it was just part of the, you know, public consciousness. All right. So very last segment. Um, I want to I want to throw a multiple choice at you. We're in our second season of the show. Noah Hawley's ticks have started to manifest yeah. a little bit more clearly. I want you to tell me which of these is your favorite 
Noah Hawley tick, um, going too far with Midwestern speak, using theoretically, ostensibly, emphatically on Fargo at yeah. the intro of every show. Yeah. Jazz music and uh, heavy driving drums uh, every time that something exciting is happening. Um, and then stylized and sometimes experimental shooting when it's completely unnecessary. Uh, the last one by far. That's your favorite? Yeah, I loved it. And I, I actually didn't think it was really unnecessary in this season. I think in other seasons it might be. But um, it felt like he was making a 70s movie or a 70s like cop show. And I really like that. I think for me, it's probably the jazz music and uh, drum solos. Yeah. Mostly because I had never really heard that before. And also, I think because since I've heard it everywhere, I feel like Noah Hawley was one of the first to really do it well. Yeah. Um, all right. With that, uh, how'd you rate the season? Give it a, give it a score. Um, I give it like a... 9.7 out of 10. That's really good. Yeah, it's a really fucking good season. Um, it's just, it is, I mean, seasons one and two of Fargo are two, I think, of the best seasons of a show like this ever. And, um, you know, anthologies are not easy to make. Uh, I think there's something very jarring going from the um, familiarity of, like, what you got to know in the first season, what you got to love, and then, like, going to a subsequent season with a completely different cast, completely different setting, a completely different aesthetic. Yeah. And it's still working really well and not relying on the tropes of what made the first season work so well. I'd, I'd probably give it a solid A. Yeah. I think there is, there's a lot to love. Um, I think there are some parts of it that it really does feel like a rewatch is necessary. Yeah. Which in general, I would say is not a very good compliment for a show but on this one it's actually quite worth it um yeah so uh with that we'll have uh, more secret chords and more regular episodes in our future thank you so much for listening uh you want to tell us where we can uh, find us no